Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to see you. Uh, thank you so much for worshiping with us, man. Your voices were strong this morning. And uh, hopefully you are having a great weekend. If you're a first-time guest, I want to welcome you to Salem Heights Church. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and find your way to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 8 is where we're going to be focusing our attention this morning. We have been in a series uh, working our way through the book of Daniel, and this week we find ourselves in chapter 8. And as you're finding your ways there, I want to just give a couple of announcements real briefly to our church family, just to highlight a few things that we heard about um, in Salem Heights today. The first is um, that all of our midweek ministries are scheduled to resume this week, so growth groups, uh, Cause, D6, all those are going to be uh, coming back this week. So hopefully you're ready for that. We've had kind of been off on a, a winter break, and now we get to come back and be able to gather together and stuff like that. So <clears throat> all that's going to resume this week, and hopefully you can be a part of that. And we are still doing Group Connect. So if you're newer to our church or possibly aren't connected and you want to be, it's not too late. Even though those groups are going to resume this week, you can still get signed up for that. So after the service, out the middle doors, we're going to have people there who can answer your questions and help you get plugged into maybe a a discipleship group or a growth group or possibly into our newcomers class, which we call Fundamentals of the Faith, which kicks off this Tuesday as well. Second thing I wanted to update you guys on is we we saw it in the Salem Heights Today video that our Lagos class is coming back. Lagos has been a class that we've had for many years. It's a class where we tackle some of the deeper topics of theology, and we're going to be bringing that back. And for this first kind of next season to the end of this year, we're actually going to be inviting you to send us your questions that you would like the pastors to answer about theological topics that interest you. And so you see this number on the screen. You're welcome to write that down if you want. Uh, and you can text in your questions and the pastors will look at those and we will begin to prepare to answer those in our classes. And so we'll be taking questions before class. We'll be gathering questions during class, but it's going to be a very interactive Q&A time for our Lagos class, which are going to start on Wednesday, the 27th at 7 o'clock. There is an opportunity for you to register for these classes online. So if you let us know that you're coming, that's great. But even if you forget to do that, we want to encourage you to come there. We're just hoping that this doesn't replace something that you're already doing. Possibly if you're already in a growth group or a small group or a discipleship group, that maybe this is something that you do in addition so that you don't lose that connection and community. But we're really excited Um, to be able to bring Lagos back. And I know that there are many of you who are interested in studying theology a little bit deeper. This is a great place for you. Last thing is that we are going to be hosting a marriage conference here at the church, March 4th and 5th. And uh, this conference is our gift to you. Our staff's been talking about, you know, based on our interactions with the, the body of Christ here at Salem Heights Church, what would be a gift we could give to our church to help them with some of the things that they're facing. And one of the things that our staff agreed on was our marriages would, would love encouragement. And so our uh, pastors are going to be working on a presentation uh, that we're going to present on two days, the 4th and 5th of March. And it's an absolutely free conference. We're encouraging anyone who's interested in marriage. You don't have to be married to come, but we're going to be focusing typically on marriage and what an ideal marriage looks like. And our theme for this conference is called A Marriage That Works. And so we're hoping that you will put this in your calendar. If you're married, thinking about getting married, want to know more about marriage, whether you've just started a marriage or you've been married for 50 years, we believe that there's going to be something for you in this workshop. And so hopefully you guys will be there and you can save the day. We'll have more information and opportunity for you to register in the coming weeks, but we just wanted to get that on your calendar as we know those things are filling up quickly. I don't know about you, but there were times in school where I questioned the value of the subject I was forced to learn. I was the student that said, are we ever going to use this? The funny, ironic part of that is that I was a teacher then for 12 years. And then I had to hear the students say the same things that I used to say when I was sitting in the chair at the desk. I think sometimes when we look at something and it's confusing and we don't understand it, or we can't at that moment find a way to connect it to what we think life really is presenting, and we don't see a way to kind of connect its relevance to what we're doing, we can kind of go, I don't really need to study this. And, you know, if I ever do need it, then I'll study at that, that point. I think for some of us, that's how we view biblical prophecy. 
And in Daniel chapter 8, the second half of the whole book of Daniel is very prophetic. Um, And so sometimes when we think about the topic of biblical prophecy, I think some of us kind of look at it and go, it's confusing, it's weird. I'm just going to kind of skip it. And, you know, if I really need to know how it, you know, what it says and if it applies to me, then I'll go to my pastor and they can tell me what I need to know because they're the ones that are supposed to know that stuff. I don't need to really worry about it. I'm here to tell you this morning, I don't think that's a good answer. And I want to tell you a couple reasons why. The Bible says that all of it is profitable. So everything in our Bibles, the completed work of God that is inspired, these are his words. The Bible says that all of it is profitable for us. And so we should study it. We should know it. The Bible actually encourages us to be able to know the Bible in such a way that we can handle it correctly, that we can actually explain it to somebody, be able to tell them what it says and to say and be able to tell them what God is saying rather than what we think it's saying. But did you know that over a quarter of the Bible is prophetic? That when it was written, it was prophetic? So if we're going to have the attitude that goes, no, prophecy is confusing and often uses words and pictures that don't make any sense. I don't see how it really relates to me today. I don't see how prophecy is going to help me be a better husband or uh, make a better decision at, you know, these two job opportunities. Or I don't see how it's going to help me, you know, invest my money more wisely. So I'm just going to kind of push it to the side. If we adopt that attitude about biblical prophecy, we're actually going to be skipping a quarter of the Bible, Now, if all the Bible is profitable, I don't think that is a good thing for us to do. I think we need to be able to engage it and try to seek to understand it. Now, I'll say from the very beginning, prophecy can be a little bit tricky. It can be a little bit tough to understand. And many people for thousands of years have been trying to understand it and debate about it and talk about it. But there are a couple of things that happen if we will not skip this task of reading and trying to understand biblical prophecy. The first is that it's going to prepare us. Prophecy tells us about the future. It tells us about things that are going to come. And I believe God has given it to us so that we're prepared for what's to come. And so if we study biblical prophecy, we're going to be more prepared of what's to come. And we're going to be more prepared of the signs of what's happening. The second thing that I think it does for us is that it inspires our confidence and it grows our anticipation when we read prophecy that's already been fulfilled. Because over half of the prophecy that's in the Bible has already been fulfilled. And so when we read about biblical prophecy that has been fulfilled, and we see it verified, not just by what the Bible says, but history tells us that what the Bible said is true, it causes us to have more confidence in God's word. And it actually helps us to grow in anticipation of saying, if he already literally fulfilled that prophecy, man, I can't wait for him to fulfill the next one that he promises is going to happen. The last thing we do, what we get when we do study prophecy, though, is that it, it's going to help sharpen our focus for today. So for all of us who think that prophecy isn't really relevant, I want to try to make a case that it is. Now, I know that through the pandemic, actually since Y2K, the whole topic of biblical prophecy has been a pretty hot topic in churches. Because we have all these signs, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, all these things that if we've grown up in church or we've been around Christianity, we know are signs that the end of this is all coming soon. And so I think a lot of us have had an interest in it, but maybe some less than others. But here's the thing. If we can grasp a little bit more today the importance of biblical prophecy, the trustworthiness of biblical prophecy— What I think it's actually going to do for us today, what makes it relevant today, is it's actually going to sharpen my focus on what I need to be about. Because if what God says is true and it's coming, I think God has called me to live in a certain way in light of that. That he's called me to to focus on certain things and not get distracted by other things that have nothing to do with what's going to happen. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do today. I have three things we're going to try to accomplish in the next few minutes. We're going to read a biblical prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to try to teach us all of Daniel chapter 8. Uh, one of the great things about this prophecy is not only do we have a vision that Daniel gets from the Lord and records for us in Scripture, but God sends an angel named Gabriel to give Daniel an interpretation of what the vision means. That's super helpful. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. So we're going to start by trying to explain this one prophecy The second thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to observe and consider just two concerns that have kind of historically been raised when people study Daniel chapter 8. And the third thing we're going to do is we're going to consider three things that we need to remember that I think are going to help us apply Daniel chapter 8 to today. 
So that's where we're going to be. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read the first 14 verses together to kind of get our, ourselves familiar with this vision that Daniel received from the Lord that's recorded for us here in Daniel chapter 8. So I'm going to ask those of you who are able to stand with me. We stand and to honor God's word. These are actually God's words recorded for us to study. And if you are ready to hear from the Lord this morning, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I saw in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam, I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram, and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The groat grew, the groat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but, then, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army made, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked its regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of its sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with regular sacrifice. The horn threw the truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. Do you believe that the Lord gave Daniel that vision? Amen. He did. You may be seated. Lord, I just pray for us in these next few moments that you'd help us understand how this prophecy was fulfilled, and God, that you would help us understand why it's relevant for us today. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to go with your family or some of your friends to an escape room. It's this weird contraption where they lock you in a room and tell you to figure your way out. Now, Escape rooms are actually pretty fun if you like riddles and clues and trying to work together as a team, but it can also be a little bit frustrating if you're not great at riddles. I've had opportunity to do this a couple of times. I think I've been successful once. Thankfully, they let you out at the end, whether you get out or not. If we just had these first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 8, I think we'd be stuck. I mean, think about it. He tells us about a ram that had two horns this goat that came out and defeated the ram. This goat had a weird, conspicuous horn sticking out of its forehead that eventually broke. And where that horn had been, four other horns grow out. And then there's another little horn that grows out of one of those four horns. Now, if all of God's words profitable and he gave us that prophecy and said, understand this, we'd have some major detective work to try to do to figure it out. But thankfully, that's not what happens in this text. And so here you have Daniel, and just to kind of briefly recap where we've been in the first seven chapters of Daniel, Daniel was a, an Israelite, he was a Jewish man who had been taken in exile to Babylon. God had allowed Israel to be conquered by Babylon because of their sin and taken into exile. And it was during that time that Daniel had, because of God's favor, had been allowed to rise up into a position of authority and power within the king's palace because Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams. He had the ability to understand those things. 
And so in the first six chapters of Daniel, we see these amazing stories that a lot of us, if we grew up in church, were really familiar with. The story of Daniel in the, in the lion's den. <clears throat> or Daniel, Daniel and his, uh, Daniel's friends who get thrown into a fiery furnace because they won't bow down to the image. But in the latter half of Daniel, we see Daniel be receiving these visions from the Lord. And they're, and they're visions about what's going to happen in the future. And in, both, in, in all these visions, Daniel's a little bit confused about what's going on. And, and thankfully, the Lord sends someone to help him understand. So let's continue on in the text here, starting in verse 15. It says this, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Uli. Gabriel explained this vision to the man. So here you have Daniel. He's, he has this vision, but even though he has the ability, these, these, these supernatural gifts that God has given him, he still doesn't have the understanding to know what do they, these things have in common? What, what are these things predicting? What does a ram and a goat and, and a little horn, like, what does this mean? So the Lord sends Gabriel, an angel, to help him understand. In verse 17, it says, So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up, and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, what I want to do here, just for a few moments here, is I want to unpack the interpretation that now Gabriel is going to give Daniel of what the the ram, the goat, and the horns mean, because it's significant. Because there's, again, multiple passages in Scripture that are prophetic. They're predicting something that's going to happen in the future. And over half of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. But that means that there's quite a few prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled in the future. And what I hope we can understand this morning is that even though this can be confusing and hard, if we'll do a little bit of homework and if we'll we'll pay attention to what's being said here, there's going to be some confidence and some anticipation that's going to be able to be grasped this morning because we're going to see that this prophecy ends up being fulfilled 400 years later. It's fulfilled with such accuracy that it's led non-believers to go, this had to have been a forgery. There is no possible way that a man named Daniel could have written this down with this detail so many hundreds of years before it took place. And then it happened that way. That's impossible. And so what man has come to do, they, they have come up with ideas to say, Daniel was actually written after it all had happened and then claimed to be prophetic. But what I want you guys to see this morning is, no, it was written when Daniel was in exile in Babylon. It was speaking about some kingdoms that were going to rise up in the future and how it was going to impact the Israelite people. And what I hope that we will see this morning is that fulfilled prophecy in Scripture should only strengthen our confidence in God's holy word. So let's take a look at what's being said. We read about it. There is this ram, right? This ram that he sees has two horns. One horn is a little bit longer than the other. He gives an explanation here of that in verse 20. He says this, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The kings of Media and Persia. Now the two horns there represent each of these kingdoms. And it says the second one was longer but came up last. It's referring to Persia. I have a map up here that I want to show you. Persia, you see in the bottom right-hand corner, was a smaller territory than Media. You see Media is that big, large yellow section. But they joined forces and then began to move uh, to the west to conquer Babylon and then up into Lydia. And so Daniel, at this point, when he's getting this vision, he's in Babylon. Babylon is the world power. And you remember a few weeks ago, Babylon thought there was no one that was going to be able to take us down. There was no one that's going to be able to thwart our defenses. But God allows it to happen. And so through this, Persia and Media come together. And this is what is being predicted. Daniel, there's coming a time this second kingdom is going to raise up. And they're going to come against Babylon. They're going to overtake it. And this this kingdom is going to be powerful. And it's going to be arrogant. History tells us that it actually happened. 
that a man named Cyrus from Persia locked up with the Medes and they were able to conquer all these things and be able to expand their territory to become the world power at that day. He goes on in the interpretation. The second thing we saw in the vision was this goat, a goat that rises up and attacks the ram. Well, who's the goat? It says in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. What he predicts is after the Medes and Persians rise up and they take out Babylon and become the new world power, after a season, there's going to be another kingdom that rises up from Greece. Now we look at this next map here up on the screen. You see in the top left-hand corner, this is where uh, the Greek empire started, that little red circle. And you notice that all that green becomes their empire. Everything that, that Cyrus, through the Medes and the Persians, had made into the Persian empire would now become the Greek empire. And the horn, it says, of this goat that comes at the Medes and Persians with this savage fury is its first king. And we understand that to be historically fulfilled by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great led this revolt. He was a young man. The reason why they called him the Great was because of how fast his conquest was, how fast he was able to move from that little red circle and take over the entire Persian empire, which is predicted here in the scriptures. If we look back earlier in the, in the uh, prophecy, it says in verse five, and I was observing a male goat coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. That phrase, without touching the ground, is referring to the speed in which it took over. And so 400 years later, Alexander the Great comes from Greece, moves that direction from the west towards the east, and is so quickly able to conquer that area, they call him the Great because of how swift he moved. Let's go back to the prophecy. Verse 22. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without power. Alexander the Great moves through quickly. He establishes the Greek empire, but then something happens. Unexpectedly, at the age of 33, Alexander the Great dies. And what happens at that point is his kingdom is divided by four of his generals into four parts. You see here the large green part, that's the Seleucus Empire. You have up by Macedonia, where Greek kind of started in Macedonia, that, that yellowish portion. Another, another general took the purple portion, and another general took the orange portion, and they divided up the whole Greek empire into four. They weren't as powerful as Alexander the Great, but they were still ruling together over this Greek empire. Now you might go, okay, now I can kind of see how some people were frustrated at how precisely this prophecy is being fulfilled hundreds of years later. Because history tells us that 400 years from when Daniel received this, Medo-Persia rose up and took out Babylon. And then after a time, Greece rose up and took out Persia. And then its king died and it divided into four kingdoms. Exactly as was predicted. Then look what it says in verse 23. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached their full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. <clears throat> his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. And so it says here that out of the four kingdoms that uh, Alexander's kingdom is divided in, those four horns, out of one of those kingdoms, a little horn will arise near the end of the time of that empire. History tells us that after Alexander established that Greek empire, and even after it divided, about 175 years later, there was a man who rose out of that green section, the Seleucus Empire, named Antiochus Epiphanes. History tells us that this little horn in Scripture is Antiochus Epiphanes, that he 
fulfilled these descriptions that we just read about in verses 23 through 25 perfectly. History tells us that he acted arrogantly, as was predicted in verse 11. He hated the Jews, and he had determined in himself that he was going to extinguish the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. That he was going to go there, and he was going to install Greek customs that would replace all the customs of Judaism, and that they would no longer be able to worship their gods. He would go in in 167 BC and he would halt sacrifice and overthrow the palace of the sanctuary, which is predicted in verse 11. Antiochus Epiphanes went there. One of the things that's interesting about this prediction, it says in verse 25, he will destroy many in a time of peace. At this time, even in the Greek empire, there wasn't much persecution going on to Jerusalem and the practices there. In fact, the surrounding countries, they kind of viewed Israel as a kind of its own thing. But Antiochus said, no, I want to go destroy them. And so he goes in there and he not only says, we are no longer going to allow you to sacrifice here and do your sacrificial systems and practice your religious laws and do those things. He closes the door of the temple and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in that temple, which was a defilement of that because uh, pigs were seen as unclean. So not only does he bring an unclean animal into the temple and sacrifices on the altar, then he again erects idols and statues to false gods in the temple, the place of Jewish worship. It said in verse 23 that he would assume power near the end of the kingdoms. I mentioned this earlier that after Alexander died, about 150 years later, Antiochus Epiphany arises fulfilling that. In verses 23 and 25, it talks about how this little horn that was going to arise would be a ruthless king skilled in intrigue and that he would be cunning or crafty or sneaky. If you read history about how Antiochus came into power, Antiochus was actually not the rightful heir to the throne in that part of the kingdom. But through kind of words and bargaining bargaining and bartering and trying to convince people to let him do certain things, he actually was able to use his words to get in a position of power. He oftentimes would try to befriend people and kind of say, well, we'll do this together. But once he got in a position of power, he worked to eliminate his competition. He was able to fulfill that. It says in verse 24, it predicted that this little horn would cause outrageous destruction. Antiochus Epiphanes did this. He destroyed the copies of the Torah. These were the scriptures in the Old Testament for those Jewish believers. He actually made it illegal. If you had a copy hidden and you were found out, you would die. It was a penalty of death if you had a copy of the Torah. He forbid Jews from following their laws and their religious practices. He forced them to actually go against it. He required them to eat pork. He said they could no longer circumcise their uh, male infants, which was a sign God had given to the Israelites to try to distinguish them as his chosen people. And in one three-day period, He killed 40,000 Jews and sent another 40,000 away into slavery. The prediction was there would be a man who would rise up from one of these areas who would do these things. And 400 years later, Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled them. In verse 25, it predicted that this little horn in his own mind would exalt himself. This idea is that he would actually raise himself up to be like God or to be God. Antiochus Epiphany's actual name was Antiochus IV. But he he put on himself the name Epiphanes, which actually means God manifested. And he claimed to be an incarnation of the god Zeus. In fact, on the coin that was made during his reign, on on the backside of the coin, it had a picture of him depicting himself as Zeus, holding the God of victory, Nike, claiming that he was God and that he had the victory over all the empire. But the last part of this prophecy about what would happen to this little horn is very interesting. It says in verse 25, yet he will not, or excuse me, he will be broken, meaning he will die, but not by human hands. What's interesting as we kind of read through Daniel, as, as one of these empires comes up and the next one comes through, it seems that all of the leaders die through battle. Something happens to them. 
But the prediction was that this future little horn that would be arrogant and vile and ruthless and cunning and he would rise up and he would be able to take over power and he would eventually have an end, but it wouldn't come at human hands. History tells us the Antiochus Epiphanes died from an internal injury. It was a, a flesh-eating injury. So painful and the odor was so horrific that no one could carry around or be around. It said his odor filled the entire camp where he was at. And when this first started to happen to him, he did what most people who claim to be God do. They double down in their ignorance. And he said, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be more committed to my passion to wiping out the Jewish people. But his disease got worse and the stench got worse and the pain became unbearable to where he couldn't be around any of his people. And on his deathbed, it tells us in history, he finally acknowledged that no one should call themselves God because obviously we're not. This little horn that would raise up out of this kingdom that would be divided would come up. He would create outrageous destruction. He would halt sacrifices. He'd be arrogant. He'd get into power through schemes and he would eventually die, not by human hands, but by some other force. It's predicted by Daniel and hundreds of years later, fulfilled perfectly by this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what's interesting, we mentioned before in the book of Daniel, Daniel is written in a couple of different languages. It starts out in Hebrew, the language of the Israelite people, and then it moves into Aramaic. But what's interesting to note here is in Daniel chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. Most scholars believe that that's because this section is focused on Israel. What's going to happen to Israel? And so Daniel is given a vision about these kingdoms that are going to rise up and persecute the people of Israel and I think God is doing this to prepare them for what's going to come, but also to show them that this is going to be short term in the scope of eternity and that God is going to still reign over ruthless kings. And so you can see how like this prophecy comes down and it's recorded in scripture and then it happens and it is beautifully fulfilled. And, and I think we can kind of start to understand why non-believers would start to go, wait a second. The accuracy of fulfillment of this prophecy is too good to be true. This obviously had to have been written after the fact where they could just claim, you know, speak so specifically and then claim that they had seen this hundreds of years earlier. And so there have been some concerns that have risen. And so I want to focus just a few minutes on these concerns because I think it's important that we understand how these concerns have already been addressed and have been uh, sufficiently answered. The first concern I want to just draw your attention to actually came about around the third century AD. And it's by a man named Porphyry. And what he talked about was he actually was one of the ones kind of given credit for first denying the legitimacy of Daniel being a prophetic book. He said, there's no way that Daniel could have written this while he was in Babylonian exile before the Medo-Persian empire and before the Greek empire and before the division of the empire and before Antiochus Epiphanes. No, he had to have written this hundreds of years later at the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign and then claimed it to be prophetic. So it had to be a forgery, meaning it claimed to be prophetic when it really wasn't. Now, this has been this debate. Now, okay, how do we respond to this? Because if it's true that Daniel really is a forgery that was written after all these events took place and then claimed to be prophecy, then it actually shows that we can't trust the Bible as being error-free and truth-filled. And if that's the case for this one prophecy, then it would call into question all prophecy in the Bible. And since over a quarter of the Bible is prophecy, it would really impact the truthfulness of the claims of the Bible and Christianity. But if it could be proven that Daniel was written while he was in Babylonian exile, hundreds of years before it actually took place, and that it came to pass just as God had predicted, man, it takes our faith and the surety of our faith to the next level. Because who besides God can make that prophecy and have it come to pass just as it was predicted? 
And so there's been much scholarly work written about this, people going back and forth trying to do this. If you were to go in and, and type in your search engine, the dating of Daniel, you will find all kinds of scholarly works that people try to figure out. Did it really, was it really written back when it claims to be written or was it written later? And so we don't have time to unpack all of that. I've got some articles and resources. If you want to do some of that scholarly reading, I have some stuff for you. But I just want to give one piece of evidence that leads me to conclude that no, Daniel was written at the time of Babylon, hundreds of years before it happened. And this fulfillment of this prophecy strengthens my faith and my confidence that what God says is going to happen will always happen. In 1947, there was a series of caves where they found a number of documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were hundreds of ancient documents that had been put in these caves, fragments of all different kinds of works, biblical and extra biblical. But in these caves, they found copies, ancient copies of all of the Old Testament books, except for the book of Esther. And amongst those copies, they had close to eight copies of the book of Daniel. And using secular dating, usually in secular processes to determine when these things had actually been written, it was concluded by not just biblical people, biblical scholars. I love this picture. This is actually a fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls where it shows the change from Aramaic back into Hebrew right where we're at today, going from chapter 7 to chapter 8. This is actually in existence. But secular scholars, having looked at the evidence and looked at the dating of this, going, there's no way that this document could have been written after the fact and then accepted as truth. Because the Jewish people had these really strict policies for prophecy. And if you could prove that a prophecy was not real, you didn't accept it. It had to go through this process and the, the timing just doesn't work out. How old this is and when this is all supposed to occur. And it's led many people to conclude. No, Daniel was written when it said it was written. Hundreds of years before any of this took place. And when we read about its fulfillment, we can have confidence that it's being fulfilled because God is an omniscient God who saw all things and he predicted what was going to happen because he already saw it. Now, this is one of the more simple definitions, and there's a lot more evidence for this. But this is just one piece that says, this argument about, I can understand why you're trying to call into question Daniel's dating because it would cause our whole faith to start to crumble. But I believe the biblical account stands up to that cross-examination. But there's another struggle that sometimes people have when they're reading Daniel chapter 8. And especially, it's a struggle that focuses on, has Daniel 8 truly actually been completely fulfilled? Was Antiochus Epiphanes really the fulfillment of that little horn? And the, and the struggle here, we call this the little, the little horn debate, is because in Daniel chapter 7, which Pastor Justin preached on last week, we hear about a, another little horn that's going to rise up and persecute the church, and, and it's going to be eventually defeated by the Lord. And then in chapter 8, we read about another little horn that's rising up out of a kingdom. And How do we know these aren't the same, the same people? And so the question here, is the little horn of chapter 8 the same as the one prophesied in chapter 7? And although these descriptions are similar, I do not believe they're the same. Now again, I can't go into all the detail that we could to explain this, but I want to give you an answer to this. Why I believe that, no, they're different. But yes, the little horn, the person that's the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 that we're talking about this morning is a type of the little horn that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Here's the main reason. In Daniel chapter 7, there are four kingdoms that are identified in Daniel's vision. Four kingdoms that, that God is telling Daniel, four kingdoms are going to come up. And I'm going to show you that God is sovereign in all those times. No matter how those kingdoms persecute Israel, I'm still sovereign. I'm still going to protect you. I'm still going to bring my Messiah. I'm still gonna, my plan is still going to succeed. In Daniel chapter 7, the little horn, this arrogant leader that's going to arise, comes out of the kingdom that's the fourth kingdom which we have identified as Rome. In Daniel chapter eight, the little horn that rises up, this arrogant leader that's gonna cause outrageous destruction and persecute the Israelites comes out of the third kingdom, clearly the third kingdom of Greece. I do not believe they're the same.
the little horn, that this arrogant leader that rises up in Daniel chapter seven, at the end of his reign, when the Lord conquers him, that kicks in or institutes the final kingdom, God's kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But that's different than the result we see at the end of Daniel chapter eight. And so when we look at this and people go, well, can, really, can you really claim that that's fulfilled? And, and should you really have much confidence in biblical prophecy because you claim that Daniel 8 has been fulfilled perfectly by God? I mean, aren't, isn't that the same? And aren't we still waiting for that little horn to come in the future? I'm going to say, no, Daniel 8 has been fulfilled. But yes, there are similarities in that little horn that are going to be, we're going to see again in this arrogant leader that's going to come in the future as the times end. And God is going to conquer that, that little horn. And yes, they're, they're similar, but they're different. Now you might be saying, Pete, this seems more like a lecture than a sermon. Get to the, the good stuff. But I, I want to just tell you this. Like, I'm not trying to bore you with the details, but I'm trying to show you that the Bible stands up to cross-examination. I remember when I went to uh, Latvia, an Eastern European country, for the first time as a, as a, on a short-term mission trip, and I was talking to with these students, and, and you're going Latvia was occupied by the Soviet Union for many years, atheistic, um, non-God-fearing, very dark part of the world. And I was meeting, we were talking with these teenagers, and they were just saying they had been taught and had come to believe that religion was for the weak-minded. People whose lives were hard, who couldn't really make much of their own lives, couldn't kind of do it on their own. They just believed that religion was for the weak-minded. If you didn't really have anything else, you just chose to kind of maybe kind of naively believe in God so that you could kind of try to ignore the problems of your life. I just remember saying them like, well, that's not my story. Like, I, I'm not ignoring anything. I've actually, I've examined it. And I've, I've asked the tough questions of the Bible. And, I, and, I've, and I've put some of those things to the test. And what I keep finding over and over again is that the, the, the Bible and God's word doesn't fold under my cross-examination. It continues to prove itself as true and reliable time and time again. They had never heard that before. They had taken somebody else's word that the Bible couldn't stand on its own two legs and that religion was for the weak. But as we begin to show them and unpack certain things for them, you could see the wheels in their mind going, huh, maybe there is more that I need to investigate here. The times would end. This Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn would be brought to an end, but not by human hands. And we learn in history that what happened was there was a revolt by some of the people who had fled from Jerusalem, these sons of Maccabee, and they began to revolt and they tried to get back control of Jerusalem and they were eventually successful. And they would be able to cleanse the temple and restore sacrifices and begin to bring that to an end just as was predicted. So why is it important for us today to look at Daniel chapter 8? Why not just skip over to something that seems a little bit more practical for 2022? Well, we're never going to skip passages that are tough or awkward because it's all profitable and we need to try to seek understanding. But I do think there are three things for us to consider this morning as we wrap up that make it applicable for today. Three truths that I want you to cling on to as we wrap up. The first one is this. God knows the future, all of it, every detail. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's sovereign. If we just believe that God is omniscient, but not sovereign, then we could say, well, yeah, God knows everything. He's this higher power, but he has absolutely no control to change anything, control anything. He's just kind of at the mercy of what he's seeing going on. That's not what's going on here. He's not only all-knowing, he's all-powerful. I was trying to think about who is the smartest person on the planet, I looked it up. There are some really smart people. I, I haven't heard a lot of their names, but they have like super high IQs. But when I did the Google search of using my search engine and my brain, the smartest person I could think of was Ken Jennings. I don't watch Jeopardy, but I heard about what he did. Ken Jennings won 74 straight episodes of Jeopardy. Now I've watched Jeopardy and I know like it's super easy at home to get all the right answers, right? No, Jeopardy has weird categories, tough questions. You have to answer everything in the form of a question. And this guy, 74 straight episodes, he was seen as this like brilliant man. 
He had won all these things. He, he is super, super smart. I would not be able to like match him in a battle of wits. But can I tell you something? No matter how smart Ken Jennings is, he cannot predict what happens tomorrow with any certainty. He can make an educated guess, but he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. Think about the experts in the last two years who predicted the future. How has that gone? And yet we're going to allow them to tell us how to interpret the scriptures, whether or not we can believe in God's word, that we should trust them and their expertise rather than what God's word says. It's foolishness. God is omniscient. He's sovereign. And if he says something, it's going to happen. Think about that. If God says something, it's going to happen. This is a terrific thought for a faith-filled person. Isn't it? How terrific is it? How comforting is it though? If God says it, it's going to happen. And how terrifying is it for a faithless person? Because if what God says actually is going to come to pass, scripture tells us there's going to come a point where all those who have rejected the free gift of salvation in Christ are going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and they're going to be judged based on their works. And in their own works, all the good that they produce, they will not be found justified in God's eyes and they will be sent away from him forever to live in a judgment of eternity in hell. We go, well, that's a prophecy. That's going to happen in the future. Can we really trust that? I'm trying to say this helps us to know that when he fulfills something perfectly in the past, over and over and over again, we can trust that he is going to perfectly fulfill it in the future. Second thing I want you to remember this morning as we leave God is sovereign over every earthly king and kingdom. It seems like each foe we face as we move through the course of human history seems stronger, larger, and more formidable. Think about it in their time. Man, they thought Antioch, or Alexander the Great was going to be the hardest. And then Antiochus Epiphany rises. But I want to tell you this. They are not the worst leaders, and they will definitely not be the last. But I don't want us to forget that God is not a God limited by the physical universe. He is a supernatural, all-powerful God. There's a scene in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones has just escaped a kind of a battle with 12 guys. And he comes around the corner in this busy, busy town and all the bodies part. And standing at the end of this alleyway is this big sword-wielding warrior. And he has kind of that maniacal laugh. <laughs> and he starts to swing his sword and do all these cool tricks. And in that moment, the movie shows us you have Indiana Jones who's tired and whooped and he's just defeated. And now he's got to face this massive guy. And this guy has a sword and he has a whip. How in the world is he going to defeat this foe? Indiana Jones reaches under his shirt, pulls out his gun and shoots the guy. And I don't say that to glorify that act. What I'm saying is this. Sometimes we look at God and we see what's going on in our world and we think God is holding a whip and the world's holding a sword. No, no, no. God is supernatural. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. And we can trust in his sovereignty that he reigns over ruthless kings. And although he allows certain things to happen, he ultimately wins. And so when we understand this, that God's never at a disadvantage, that he will never be defeated, we can hold on to this last truth, and it's this. God's perfect, literal fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 8 should inspire confidence and anticipation of his perfect, literal fulfillment of the prophecies that remain. I think God allows these fulfilled prophecies to be in Scripture so that as we as New Testament believers living in 2022 read them, it causes us to go, and I can trust God with this next prophecy, and I can believe that that's going to happen just as God says it, both physically and literally. Is that true for you? See, the future might be uncertain to us, but it's not uncertain. The last verse of our text says this, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. 
Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Even though Daniel was able to interpret dreams, even though Daniel had been shown favor by God, and even though Daniel had been the recipient of this prophecy so that he could tell this prophecy and leave it for the people of Israel, predicting what was going to happen in the future, Daniel still didn't know what all this meant. He knew that it was going to come out of the medial Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, and there's going to be these, these leaders that were going to raise up, but he didn't know who, when, or how. But do you notice that, that even in the uncertainty, even though Daniel couldn't articulate what we now can, looking back on human history, that Daniel continued to be about what he had been left to do. There comes a point when we look to the future that yes, God has left many prophecies for us to understand. And in the end, all those prophecies tell us that we can trust God and that he has been victorious. And those who are in him will stand victorious with him forever. But the uncertainty of the future from our limited human perspective should not cause us to kind of ignore what's going on or run away and hide. God has left us here in this time to do a certain work, to know him and to make him known. And Daniel said, I don't understand what this is going to be. And it really troubles me that this is coming, but I can trust God. I'm going to continue to do what he left me to do. For Daniel, that was to continue to be part of the king's business. God left me here and I'm going to serve as a faithful slave and continue to reflect my God and my faith in my God. For you, God has left you here in 2022, living in this world and in this state. And he's left you here, not just to kind of mope and to wait or to be fearful and hide. He's saying, Continue to be about the work that I've placed you here to do, trusting that I've got the future already handled. The future seems uncertain, but it's not. He can be trusted. So the question for us this morning is, what will you be about as you await his return? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the, the gift of your word, and the gift of uh, understanding it. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, which you give to us when we believe by faith in the gospel and receive you uh, and receive your son as our savior. We receive the gift of your Holy Spirit to understand spiritual texts. God, we're thankful for the reminder that no matter how ruthless the kings are that you allow to have authority, you still are sovereign over them and they will all be held accountable to you. God, I believe that you've put these in the scriptures to call us to continue to be faithful, to call us to continue to trust you, to call us to continue to walk by faith. And God, I'm thankful for how prophecy bolsters our faith. So God, I pray that we would not skip it or ignore it, but that we would study it and we would ask for understanding. And as we, you begin to reveal how you are good to your word and how you fulfill what you say you're going to fulfill, let that inspire confidence and in our, our anticipation for the fulfillment of everything left that you've said is going to happen. We have so much to live for. Help us to not be distracted or fearful, but faith-filled in these days. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.